But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry. That leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, this week we continue our two-week series in the book of Jude. We saw last week that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was concerned about a threat to the gospel. Ungodly people had crept into the church unnoticed, and they were using God's grace as a license for sin. And so Jude wrote a short, urgent letter to the church, appealing to them to contend or to fight for the faith. Last week, he told us why we must contend for the faith, and this week, he's going to tell us how we do that. And I think Jude's message is going to be extremely relevant to many different types of people. So just imagine that your Christian life is like a boxing match, okay? This is gonna be easier to imagine for some of you than others, but uh, stick with me. Imagine your Christian life is like a boxing match, and it's the end of the round, and you walk back to your corner, and in your corner is your trainer, and it's Jude, okay? Now let me ask you, how do you think your fight is going? So maybe you're here this morning and the fight is exhausting. You've taken one too many blows. You feel beat up on the ropes. You're not sure you can go another round and you're about to throw in the towel. In other words, you're not sure you can keep going in the Christian life. A combination of sin and suffering has left you feeling dazed and confused. You're concerned that you're not going to get out of this fight alive. Well, Jude is going to look you in the eye this morning, and he's going to encourage you. He's going to convince you to keep fighting. He's going to tell you that you will make it to the end. Or maybe you're here this morning, and things are a bit different. The truth is, you've forgotten you're in a fight. You've hardly thrown a punch you're yet to break a sweat. In other words, you've been spiritually lazy. You're not growing as a Christian. You've become stagnant, maybe even drifting. Well, Jude is going to give you a proverbial slap in the face. He's going to give you some smell and salts. 
He's going to galvanize you to wake up and get back in the fight. Or maybe you're here this morning and actually the fight is going pretty well. Don't get me wrong, you've taken a few punches, you've lost a few rounds, you've made a few mistakes. But by God's grace, you're winning this contest. You're fighting sin. Jesus is becoming increasingly precious to you and you feel encouraged. Well, Jude is going to spare you on today. He's going to remind you to keep doing what you're already doing. He's going to help you to keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Well, finally, maybe you're here this morning and, well, you're not even in this fight. In other words, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Well, Jude is going to try and persuade you to throw your hat in the ring because this is a fight worth having a battle worth entering, a prize worth winning. So let's hear what Jude has to say to us this morning. To help us to receive his words, I've got two points for you. The first point is this. We must keep ourselves in God's love. We must keep ourselves in God's love. If you look at verse 17, you'll see that Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, This is Jude's second call to remembrance in the letter. He gave his first call to remembrance back in verse 5. The call to remember is found throughout the Bible, but it never means mere mental recollection. It's not that we simply forget things, although sometimes we do. Remembrance has to do with taking to heart what we already know. Kind of like when I tell my kids that I love them every day. I don't do that because I think they've forgotten I do that because I want them to take to heart what they already know. This is what Jude is doing here. He wants his readers to remember, to take to heart, he says, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. If you recall last week, Jude has already cited two extra biblical works, so the Assumption of Moses and the book of First Enoch. And to us, that was really strange, wasn't it? You know, our first impulse was to probably ask, why on earth would Jude refer to something that's not in the Bible? But I think we need to see that in Jude's day, the most audacious thing for him to do would be to quote the apostles alongside the Old Testament prophets. So in the previous verses that we looked at last week, remember he told us to remember the Old Testament examples of of ungodliness and judgment. These were stories that were written down by the Old Testament prophets. But now in verse 17, he's telling us to remember the words of the apostles. And what Judah's doing here is really important because he's giving the apostles equal authority with the Old Testament prophets. And what he's doing is he's grounding our faith in both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. And Paul does this actually in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And notice what the apostles said. The phrase there, they said to you, is is imperfect in the Greek. We might translate it like this. They were in the habit of saying to you. In other words, this is something the apostles continually spoke about. They, They didn't just say it once or twice. They continually warned about scoffers, he says. 
scoffers. If you've read the book of Proverbs, that, that term might be familiar to you because the book of Proverbs has a lot to, te- to say about scoffers. A scoffer is someone who is unteachable, arrogant, divisive, quarrelsome, foolish, condemned. These are the kinds of people, Jude says, will come in the last time. Ungodly people following their own sinful desires. That phrase there, the last time, it's used throughout the New Testament. It refers to basically the entire time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So Jude and his readers, they were living in the last time, and so are we. He continues in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Maybe you're starting to notice that Jude likes to list things in sets of three. Scoffers are habitually divisive. They're drawn to conflict. They produce cliques. They breed discontent. They facilitate gossip. They relish controversy. That's because, Jude says, they're worldly people. So when you, when you, when you peel back the Christian veneer, these people are no different than unbelievers. Their minds are set on this world. Their hopes are shaped by earthly things. In fact, Jude says, they're devoid of the Spirit. They lack the fruit of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. They're, they, they're ungodly because they're godless, Jude's trying to say. And this is why we must contend for the faith, because people like this creep into the church. But how exactly are we to contend? How does Jude want us to fight Well, he tells us in verses 20 to 21. And his words are quite surprising, really, because what he does is he takes our focus off the opponent, off the ungodly people. He doesn't say, look, here's how you need to handle people like this. Rather, he puts the focus on the spiritual health of his readers. Look at verses 21 to 22. I think understanding the grammar of these verses is really helpful because if you look there, you'll see there is one verb and three participles. So the verb there is keep, verse 21, or verse 21 there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And then Jude gives us three participles that unpack how we do that. He tells us there in verses 20 to 21 to remain in God's love by building, praying, and waiting. Do you see that? Building, praying, and waiting. So let's consider each of those participles. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jude says, But you, beloved, don't be like those scoffers. Instead, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. It's a holy faith because it comes from a holy God and it makes us holy people. As we've already seen, the faith there is the body of Christian belief. It's the good news that God, Jesus, saves sinners, the gospel. This is the central message of the entire Bible. That in Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection, God has accomplished salvation. 
He's rescued us from the penalty and the power of sin. He's forgiven us, justified us, adopted us, sanctified us, and reconciled us to himself. And this salvation is available to anyone who trusts in Jesus. There's nothing for us to earn. There's nothing for us to contribute. It's a free gift to be received by faith. That's the gospel. That is the faith. And so here's what Judah's saying. The first way we need to remain in God's love The first way we remain in God's love is by building ourselves up in the gospel. You know, we we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's not like we we need the gospel, but then we get saved and then we we advance to deeper theological waters. I think sometimes we we imagine that the gospel is kind of like a diving board. It's merely the entryway into the pool of the Christian life. But that's not true because the gospel is both the diving board and the pool. In other words, it's not only the way we begin the Christian life, it's the way we continue in the Christian life. Or to use another metaphor, it's not simply the flame that ignites the Christian life. It's the fuel that keeps us going day by day. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Or we might better say the A to Z, but that doesn't rhyme. Uh, You know, Paul's getting at this point in Colossians chapter two, verses six to seven. Look what he says there. He says this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, how did we receive Christ Jesus? through faith in the gospel. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, i.e. through faith in the gospel. Rooted, and what does he say? Built up in him and established what? In the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Same thing Judah's saying. Therefore, we never move beyond the gospel, but we're always going deeper into the gospel. So how do we do this? Well, we feast on Christ in his word. We we open up the Bible and we fix our eyes on Jesus. We meditate on, chew on, mull over, ponder the gospel. Now, maybe this is something you struggle with. You know, you find it hard to read the Bible, particularly on your own. And so you feel like you're currently swimming in the shallow end of the gospel. And maybe your Christian life seems a little bit stagnant stale. Well, this is why God has given you a church family. Everything in the life of our church is meant to help you feast on Christ in his word. It's why we have equipping classes, youth, preteens, small groups, women's Bible study, men's group, annual retreats, evening service. We want to build one another up in Christ. And we do that by opening God's word and diving deeper into the gospel. Secondly, we're meant to be praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20. Sorry, verse, yes, verse 20. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Jude isn't talking about some kind of special, advanced, protein-powered prayer here. That's not what Jude is talking about. Jude, he just simply wants us to pray. Specifically, we should pray in light of God's word. 
Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying for the things that we know the Spirit would agree with. Again, Paul seems to make this connection in Ephesians chapter 6. He says there in verse 17 to 18, and take the helmet of salvation, and then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Notice how he calls the word of God the sword of the Spirit, and then he immediately tells us to pray in the Spirit. You know, I've been doing this throughout this week for myself and for you all. I've been praying that God would help us contend for the faith, that we would build ourselves up in the gospel, that we would pray in the spirit. I've been praying God's word back to him. That's what Jude is saying that we should do. You know, Jude's just given us Christianity 101 here, isn't he? He's not offering us some like special source to the Christian life. He's saying, hey, if you wanna, if you wanna keep yourselves in God's love, Devote yourself to God's word and prayer. Prayer is a way of expressing our dependence on God. It's a way of bringing our desires into line with God's desires. It's a means of receiving God's transforming grace. So we should pray. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But let's be honest, prayer is difficult. I mean, it's difficult because sometimes we just don't know what to pray for. Thankfully, in Romans 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit actually helps us to pray. He intercedes for us even when we don't have the words. But God has also given us one another. So if you struggle to pray, and who doesn't, by the way, let me encourage you to start coming to the evening service, attend a small group, join the women's Bible study or men's group, engage your heart and mind when we pray during the morning service. You know, I often feel like I don't pray enough. But when I stop and think about it, I actually pray more than I think because I pray a lot with you all and that actually counts. (laughs) Thirdly, we're meant to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says there in verse 21. Sin, it it makes us so short-sighted, doesn't it? So remember the scoffers in verse 19, they were worldly people. Their focus is on this earth. They're only concerned about what they can get from life now. However, believers are citizens of heaven. Our focus should be on eternity. We should always be waiting for the day when Jesus comes back, the day when he has mercy on us and he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, the day we fully experience eternal life. Having an eternal perspective helps keep us in God's love. So in Matthew 24... Jesus tells us that he is returning at an hour that we, don't, we won't expect. And then he basically says to us that this should motivate us to obedience. Building, praying, waiting. This is Jude's battle strategy. And I think that means if, if you're not doing this, it's likely that you're struggling in the Christian life. To use the boxing metaphor again, you probably feel on the ropes, struggling to gain composure, maybe even out for the count. But Jude gives us some simple ways to land a few jabs. And that doesn't mean the fight will be easy, but this is how we contend for the faith. Before we move on, it's important to note that the Greek in all of this is plural. 
So Jude is not telling us to go away and fight for the faith as isolated individuals. These are things that we do together as a church. We help one another to remain in God's love. In fact, that's exactly what we are doing right now, this morning. As we open up the Bible together, as we rehearse the gospel together, we are building ourselves up in the most holy faith. As we pray together, in light of scripture, we're praying in the Holy Spirit. As we take the Lord's Supper together, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, as we sing songs about eternity, we're setting our hope on heaven, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we gather every Sunday, because this is one of the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God. This church, what we're doing right now, this is how we contend for the faith. But Jude isn't done. You know, in contending for the faith, Jude doesn't want us to become callous because it's a sad reality, isn't it, that those who care most about protecting the faith can sometimes be kind of mean. Have you noticed that? Maybe, maybe you've seen it in some churches. Maybe you've even seen it in yourself. There's just a danger of becoming harsh, unloving, merciless towards those who aren't as serious about godliness as we are. We, we, you know, we, we even become self-appointed heresy hunters. But Judah will have none of that. He wants us to be those who not only receive mercy, but who show mercy to others. Look at verses 22 to 23. Jude gives us, yep, you guessed it, three types of people. Those who doubt, those in danger, and those who disobey. It's likely that Jude is thinking here of people who've been destabilized by the false teachers, If you look in verse 22, he says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. This is someone who is wavering in their faith. They want to remain in God's love, yet they are beset with doubts. Maybe they have intellectual doubts. You know, they're unsure about the reliability of the Bible, the reality of the resurrection, the divinity of Jesus maybe even the existence of God. Or maybe their doubts are more personal in nature. Often these kinds of doubts are brought on by suffering and pain. So they wonder, how can God be good, wise, and sovereign if he allowed that to happen? Or how can I trust God if he's denying me this desire? Sometimes a person has doubts about themselves. They wonder, am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? Can he really forgive someone like me? Maybe you can relate to some of those doubts. It's important to note that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. However, doubt can lead to unbelief if left unchecked. And that's why Jude wants us to have mercy on those who doubt. There are many reasons why somebody might be struggling with doubt. Sometimes they just have unanswered questions. And they need someone to patiently open the Bible with them. Sometimes they've experienced profound suffering. 
and they need somebody to faithfully walk alongside them. Sometimes doubt can even be caused by living in unrepentant sin. So our behavior can affect our belief. Sometimes we begin to doubt because it actually makes it easier to justify a certain behavior or lifestyle. I remember meeting in my office once with an ex-church member and he told me that he wanted to meet because he was, he was doubting the goodness of God. And just as we, the more we talked, something just didn't seem right to me. And so at some point I asked them, hey, I know this is a bit left field here, but do you look at pornography? And he was so taken back, he nearly fell off his chair. But turns out he had a pretty significant porn addiction. And the more I spoke to him, there was clearly a link between his sin and his doubt. That's not always the case, but in this situation, it clearly was. I think when we come across people like this, Jude's saying, don't condemn them. Gently tell them to turn away from their sin. We need to show them that Jesus is actually better than their sin. We need to winsomely give them the gospel. In verse 23, Jude mentions those in danger. He says they save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are likely those who've started to compromise. Maybe they've drifted off course a bit under the influence of the false teachers. Maybe they've even begun to embrace a, sim a sinful habit or lifestyle. As a result, they're in the proverbial fire. They're in danger of God's judgment. However, Jude says these people can actually be saved. They can be snatched from the fire. These are likely those who want to follow Jesus. However, they've been conned, deceived. And so what they need is the gospel, the true gospel. And so Jude says, look, don't just write them off. Don't sit back and watch them burn. Go after them. Rescue them from the fire. Give them the true Jesus. At the end of verse 23, Jude mentions a third group there, those who disobey. He says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude there seems to be thinking of those who've gone off the deep end. They fully embraced a false gospel. Even if you gave them the true Jesus, they probably wouldn't be interested. Maybe he's even thinking about the false teachers themselves. Yet Jude tells us to show mercy to such people. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't tell us to fight them or hate them or gloat over their destruction. Rather, we should have compassion, pity. We should long to see them reconciled to God. Yet our mercy, he says, should be accompanied with fear. There's a danger in trying to restore someone that we end up being led astray. Maybe we start spending more time with them but actually what happens is they influence us more than we influence them because sin can be contagious. That's why Jude tells us to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, we're to love the sinner, yet we must never lose sight of the fact that we need to hate the sin. So that's how Jude tells us to contend for the faith. Amidst the threat of ungodliness, he wants us to keep ourselves in God's love. And we do that by building ourselves up in the gospel, praying in the Holy Spirit and waiting for Christ's return. All the while showing mercy to those who doubt, 
those in danger, and those who disobey. Okay. Do you all think you can do that? Are you ready to get back in the ring? I mean, how would you feel if the sermon ended here? Overwhelmed? Anxious? Discouraged? I mean, you certainly have a lot to be getting on with. Well, thankfully, Jude doesn't end his letter in verse 23. He doesn't want us to think that this fight ultimately depends on us. If, if the false teachers were perverting God's grace, Jude doesn't make the opposite mistake by extinguishing God's grace. In other words, he doesn't respond to licentiousness with legalism. And so let's consider our second point this morning. God will keep us in his love. God will keep us in his love. Jude ends his letter with a doxology. A doxology is a hymn of praise to God. He says there in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude instructs us to keep ourselves in God's love, verse 21. However, ultimately, it's God who keeps us in his love. That's why Jude bookends his letter with this truth. Remember verse one from last week? Jude writes to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Now he reminds us who it is that keeps us. It's God. Do you see how carefully Jude threads the needle here? He doesn't downplay our responsibility to fight for the faith. He doesn't deny our role in persevering as a Christian. Yet he's very clear that God is the one who keeps us going. He's the one who triumphs over our sins and weaknesses. It's kind of like when I go to the beach with my kids. So imagine I take my three-year-old's hand and we walk into the water. Every few steps, it gets a bit deeper. And my son is holding on really tight. I can feel his grip. However, with every crashing wave, his grip gets a little weaker. And after a while, he's not even holding on to me anymore. He's just too weak. And left to his own strength, he'll definitely drown. But ultimately, it's not his grip that keeps him safe, is it? It's my grip. There's no way I'm letting him slip from my grasp. So it is with God. We cling to him. We strive to keep ourselves in God's love. But our grip is like that of a three-year-old child. Left to ourselves, the waves of sin and suffering will make us let go. However, God's grasp never falters. He never stumbles. Psalm 63 verse 8 beautifully captures this dual reality of the Christian life. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And so Jude guards against two opposite errors here. The first error is a passive Christianity, a let go and let God mentality. Jude doesn't want us to think that we can just coast along in the Christian life. He has no place for lazy Christians. He wants us to fight 
to strive, to put the effort in. You know, building ourselves up in the gospel, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the return of Christ, pursuing holiness. This is hard work. This is, this is blood, sweat, and tears. But Jude doesn't want the pendulum to swing too far because there's an, there's an opposite error that we can make, and that's a performance Christianity where we think it's all on us, where the warnings in Scripture about falling away make us perpetually anxious, lacking assurance, and so we just exhaust ourselves trying to keep ourselves in God's love, and we can just never rest in our salvation. Depending on who you are, you probably tend to drift towards one of those two errors, a passive Christianity or a performance Christianity. But Jude has a better path. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, knowing that ultimately he is able to keep you. That phrase there in verse 24, him who is able, it comes across a little weak in English, doesn't it? It kind of, it's almost like he's saying he's able to keep us, but he might not be willing. But that's not what Jude is saying here. The sense of the Greek there is on God's magnificent power. God will keep his people in his love. God will keep his people from stumbling. That word stumbling there means to abandon the faith, to apostatize, to fall away. God won't allow his people to escape his grasp. Jesus makes that point in John 10, which Marty read earlier. Remember that? He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's great, isn't it? You know, if you're, if you're struggling in the Christian life, if you're wavering in the fight, if you often feel like you're not going to make it, let these words comfort you this morning. God will use his infinite power to keep you from stumbling. But it gets even better. Look what he says again after that. God is able to what? Present you blameless before the presence of his glory. He's able to present, literally make you stand before him. This is incredible. The prophet Malachi once imagined being in God's presence. And look what he said. He asked this, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Well, Jude says, Christian, you will. Not only that, you'll stand there blameless. How can that be? How can sinners stand blameless before a holy God? The word blameless there was associated with a sacrificial system. It, it meant to be spotless, without blemish or fault. Any sacrifice in the Old Testament presented to God had to be blameless, perfect. The idea was that in order to pay for people's sins, there had to be a sinless sacrifice. But as we know from the rest of the Bible, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were insufficient to pay for people's sins. But then Jesus came and he died as a sacrificial lamb without blemish or defect. He, the blameless one, died, taking the judgment for our sin. And now anyone that belongs to Christ by faith shares in his blamelessness. Christian, you will once, one day stand before God blameless, without fault, but Jude continues, he's not done. Look what he says, because there's more good news. Look what he says in verse 24. He's able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christian, one day you will stand 
in the presence of God's glory. You'll see his majestic brightness, his infinite perfection, his unrivaled power, his incomparable greatness, his white hot purity. And how will you feel? Full of regret? Guilty? Ashamed? Embarrassed? Distressed? Scared? No. You'll feel great joy. You'll laugh. You'll shed tears of happiness. You'll sing. You'll dance. Every joy you've known on earth is a faint whisper of the joy that you'll have on that day. Every pleasure you've had, every comfort you've experienced, every happiness you've tasted is but an appetizer, a glimpse, a foretaste of that day, because this is what you were made for. You were made for fellowship with the living God. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. After all, this is God we're talking about. Verse 25, the only God, the fount of every blessing, the wellspring of every joy, the source of every good, everything in this life that we find wonderful and delightful, beauty, friendship, love, freedom, pleasure, comfort, rest, hope, life itself finds its origin in God. He's the creator, but he's also, verse 25, our savior. You know, there's nothing like being in the presence of somebody who loves you, is there? You know, a faithful friend, a loving spouse, a caring parent, an affectionate child, well, nobody loves us like God. God loves us so much that he sacrificed his only son to save us. Imagine being in the presence of that kind of love. Imagine the joy you will feel when you're in that, the presence of that kind of love. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, well, this is the glorious future that you're missing out on. You will stand in the presence of God's glory. However, it will not be with great joy. It will be with great terror, guilt, and shame. But this doesn't have to be your story. Come to Christ. He is full of mercy and grace. Believe that his death is sufficient to pay for all your sin. Trust that he's able to save you. He's yours if you'll have him. Jude ends his hymn of praise by ascribing to God all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory there refers to God's infinite perfections. Majesty, his awe-inspiring greatness. Dominion and authority refer to God's sovereign and absolute power to rule. All of these things belong to God before all time and now and forever. This is the God who keeps us in his love. This is the one who stands in our corner. So Christian, don't you want to fight for the faith now? Hasn't Jude galvanized you to keep going? Don't you want to dive deeper into this good news? Don't you want to pray in the spirit to this God? Aren't you looking forward to that day when Christ returns and you're standing God's presence with great joy? Doesn't sin, doesn't sin seem a little more bitter and godliness a little more sweet? So brothers and sisters, let's contend for the faith. As Monday morning hits, 
and the bell rings for another round. Let's continue to fight. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God, knowing that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great news. We thank you that you are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Lord, would this motivate us to keep ourselves in your love, to build ourselves up in the gospel, to pray in the spirit, and to wait for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And would we have mercy on those who doubt, those who are in danger, and those who disobey. And we pray all these things in the wonderful name of our Savior. Amen.